0: Please note, the conversations had and the advice given in this podcast should not be considered a replacement for
1: therapy. Hello, and welcome to Wine, Dine, and 69, a podcast about dating, relationships, and sex. I'm Rachel Dalton, and here with me is my co-host, Anna Lovelace. Hello,
0: here here once again, I want to very officially give like a content and trigger warning for this episode, we will be talking about trauma, childhood trauma, um, you know, not getting into any particular details of any sort of cases, uh, but we we will be talking about trauma. So if that is something that is, you know, very intense for you, uh, I would not continue to listen. Might um, want to skip this one. Yeah, might want to skip this one. Uh, so, with that said, I would like to introduce our first ever, right? First Yay. ever interview with someone whom I adore. Um, so today we're talking with Brett. He's an EMDR trained clinical social worker who currently works in Chicago with children and teens who have experienced violent loss. Uh, he's also worked in addictions and compulsive sexual behavior uh, he's just an all around great human being. So without further ado, Brett, hello. Hi, how are you guys doing? Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I literally,
2: We're so lo- excited. I genuinely
0: love that. I feel like you are yelling and I'm very happy about it.
2: <laughs> well, I have a loud voice. Um, I have a loud personality too.
1: Yeah, it's perfect. Great for podcasting. Yeah. I
2: appreciate it. Mm.
0: So, right. I gave a little content warning. Gave a little trigger warning earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, where do we want to start?
1: Uh, well, Brett, how about you? Like, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, of course. The, basics, um, the general.
2: The general stuff. So yeah, I would um, also say you know if you do feel triggered during this, um, if you have a therapist, I would encourage you to reach out to them. Um, if you don't, there's a number of online resources that are free. You can always connect to a therapist. Uh, with the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Even if you're not suicidal, um, you can always reach out to them if this is really triggering for you or you feel like okay. you need to talk to someone. So I'll just put that out. Um,
0: and we'll put it at the the notes. We'll kind of oh, yeah. put that hotline out there. Perfect. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah, so my name is Brett Nielsen. Like Anna said, I'm a clinical social worker here in Chicago. Um, I've worked in trauma, f- honestly, for about seven years. I started working in services when I was a cute little 19 year old. I volunteered at a domestic violence shelter, um, in Utah. And I really just love working in the trauma field for whatever reason. Um, so I started there, like you said, I worked in addictions for a little bit, worked in compulsive sexual behavior. Um, and I really found that I loved working with childhood violence. Whether it's an adult, a survivor of childhood violence, or if it's a child themselves, Um, but it was—it's a really great field to work in. Um, So that's kind of a little bit about the work that I do. Yeah.
0: Yeah, man. So as you can probably hear, Brett is a very particular type of person, particular type of therapist who can, you know, be engaged with things like that. You know, at a certain degree, I am engaged in trauma, but not in a place where i'm directly like working yeah. with um,
1: for it to be every day
0: right right right,
2: right. every day yeah wow. so
0: bread is you know a, a special boy <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah yeah and then fully respect the work that you do and i can imagine that being like fairly exhausting but also fun at times
1: Definitely. And actually, uh, I guess I have a uh, first question that I didn't prep you for, but, uh, because oh, it's relevant, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how do you take care of yourself?
2: Great yeah. question. Um, first of all, I have probably the best supervisor in the entire world. Um, and the team that I work on here in Chicago, are, they're just great. You know what I mean? We spend, some time every week talking with each other and we just laugh the entire time. And then we like talk about homicide, um, (laughs) laugh again. Um, so that really helps equal everything in terms of intensity. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always been a big proponent that trauma is psychological and physical. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I think every trauma therapist has to do and trauma survivor is learn how to take care of their bodies. And so for me, that looks like running. Um, mm-hmm. I, I go for runs mostly every day um, just because it helps me regulate the, the high emotions that I'm experiencing when I'm at work. So, you know, there's a lot of social relationships that are just absolutely fundamental when you work in this field. Um, staying connected to people, which I can talk about true because what we know is that's, Proof for trauma survivors as well they have to have a solid social network right um and then just learning to take care of yourself and learning that you are deserving to take care of yourself um and knowing your boundaries and as my co-co colleague the other day said no is a full sentence mm-hmm. um you can of things and you're like god i i'm out i can't i just don't have the capacity today and so learning how to set that boundary um and kind of allocate your responsibilities, if you have them, to some trusted coworkers or some colleagues, which I've done before.
0: Yeah, which is awesome that you have a team that is very supportive like that.
2: Yeah. They're they're amazing. I love them. I mean, if you work in my field, you're probably just like a nice person.
1: <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> yeah. feel like you have to be. Yeah.
2: Um so I I, I can't say enough about my coworkers because they're just great. I have a great group of friends. Um that's what really keeps me grounded in the work
0: yeah i fully fully agree that trauma is for sure kept within the body as well mm-hmm. um it is definitely i mean it's a big reason why i weight lift like we all have the thing that we do that like gets us to the space of i need to release this right from from my human self
1: like from my body i just sing Ooh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> You guys are like, I run, I work out, and I'm like, I sing, but it's still body related. <laughs> uh, musical theater major problems, I guess.
2: I think for me, I need to like, there's so much adrenaline from working right. the field that you're like, I have the adrenaline, I might as well use it. Like, let's go.
0: Yeah, sure. yeah. I think it's very much of hearing those kind of really intense like stories and experiences where I'm like, this is now, you know, as a therapist this it's like traumatic in a, in a sense yeah. for me to hear it as well. So now this is in my body and I need, I need to expel it because I've held it for this person. Cause I think
2: emotions are contagious. You know what yeah. I mean? I think it's impossible to sit in a client with someone with such high intensity and yeah. Yeah. not feel yourself that intensity and, again, that comes down to boundaries of, like, what is mine and what is theirs. Of
0: course.
2: And, and noticing, you know, God, I'm feeling really intense right now. I need I need to calm down for a second.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like uh, it would be very hard for a therapist to not be an empathetic person. I just feel like that's part of the job. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I doubt that many, like, sociopaths are attracted to that particular <laughs> field.
0: No, probably not. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Right, (laughs) Uh, But uh, how, so how did you get started in this? Did you kind of always know you wanted to do this? Did you, like, what was your path? You know, we heard what you've had a history of doing, but like, what did that look like in your...
2: So it was when I, again, I started working in a domestic violence shelter when I was 19. Um, And it was run by a social worker. Um, Social work has done a really great field, work in the field of trauma. Mm -hmm. And... For me, I realized that trauma just isn't a psychological symptom. It's just not a cluster of symptoms. You know, that's part of it. sure. But it's also really legal and it's social. And most of all, it's political. And I think we're all feeling that right now in this political climate. Mm -hmm. um, That trauma is so much more than a psychological experience. And so for me, it was there's a lot of justice associated with it. There's a lot of empowerment, even in victimization that I really gravitated towards. Um, I love working with kids uh, because, well, kids are just the cutest. Um, <laughs> and they're, they're just really fun to work in with no matter how intense the trauma is. Um, but yeah, I just, I just kind of gravitated towards it. Um, and I am not one of those people. I don't know about you guys. I am not set for a office job. I cannot sit in a cubicle forty hours a week with a tie on. That that's just not who I am. I need right. I need some sort of intensity and stimulation, and I need to like. I feel like I'm giving back. Yeah. Um. With this work, yeah. it gets into like the root of like, what is human? Um, Definitely. So yeah, I think that's kind of how I just ended up in this field just um, stumble upon it, I guess.
0: I literally love how you were just like, well, ended up here. But in reality, like you have been in the field and you have been like a caring person the whole time. Sure. So it's not like this. Ra- <laughs> like, I love it. I mean, and I probably do the same thing when I'm talking about like my therapy, but it's I think it is a very like therapist a social worker thing to be like i don't know how i ended up doing it i just love people <laughs> like, there is a, a reason <laughs> there is for sure always a reason <laughs> um you, right? and some of it can be very personal as well so sure. like, that's literally like you said that very beautifully so thank you yeah ha- happy that you're <laughs> honestly happy that you're helping kids in particular because yeah. a lot of a lot of us cannot do that
2: There are a lot of fun i love the little kiddos <laughs>
1: And you work with both kids and adults, correct?
0: I have worked with both kids and adults. Right now,
2: I, I specialize in working with kids and teens. Um, okay. However, I think there's times when you, whenever you work with kids and teens, you're invariably working with Family. caregivers. Um, right, sure. So, so I have experience with everything, but I, I wanted to specialize with kids and teens.
1: Okay. Uh, Anna, do you want to hit one of your questions? Let's, oh, I'm man. looking through mine. You guys would say, oh like... gosh,
0: I gotta pull those up. <laughs> <laughs> what um, makes the
1: most sense in our trajectory? Right.
0: Oh, mine are all like down the line. Uh, and some of mine well, have already been
1: answered too. Yeah, I feel like that happened really naturally. Okay, well here's, so you work with kids. Mm-hmm. And I assume you're looking out you even said that you were like you would interact with their caregivers. You're working with kids. You're watching how they interact with their caregivers. Um, so one of our first episodes that we did of the podcast was about attachment theory. Sure. And um, how do you see attachment theory playing out in your day to day? And how exactly have you like witnessed it play into adult trauma? Um, and it can be general; It doesn't need to be you know specific. But like, what do you look out for? Um, and what do you try to do? in the field to, like, curb that Mm -hmm. so that, you know, this child will eventually have a, uh, be able to have healthy relationships as an adult.
2: Sure. You know, attachment theory is so central to childhood trauma. And, you know, I work with grieving children. And when we're talking about grief uh, grief and loss, that's also so related to attachment. Yeah, sure. Um, so I see it all the time. And, you know, when we're thinking about attachment, you know, attachment is a biological and psychological process related to the survival instincts. Um, we all have to attach. And if we don't attach, then we don't survive. And especially for children. is essential. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're so new at this. And if we think about attachment theory, attachment is kind of what holds kids captive in abusive environments because kids can't go out on their own and survive by themselves. And so they're really held captive just because of their own, their own dependency. Mm -hmm. Um, So from the beginning, when we're working with kids who have some sort of trauma, traumatic experience and victimization, these children are just kind of set up for a loss already. Um, so what attachment does is it kind of creates a blueprint of what relationships look like.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You have this developing child, and then you have these abusive parents. And these abusive parents are kind of illustrating this really distorted relational blueprint that that's just not adaptive. And as these children grow up they're going to end, they might enter adulthood with some of these distortions of in relationships and attachment. So that can look like a couple different things. You know, that might look like someone approaches relationships with a tremendous amount of fear because they, they came from a fearful environment. Um, Um, which, you know, if we think about it, is actually pretty adaptive. Uh, children who are in abusive environments probably should fear getting close to their parents because it's just not safe. Um, that makes a lot of sense in terms of safety. Um, and then on the other end of the coin, we have kids who might be a little bit more anxious in relationships, the anxious that they're not, their needs aren't going to get met that um, they are not going to be able to survive on their own. And again, in an abusive environment, that might be exactly what they needed to do.
0: Yeah,
1: it's a coping mechanism. It's a, it's,
2: it's a coping mechanism. It's a defense mechanism. And again, it's actually really smart that kids are able to do that. Right. Like, when you look at these kids, they're tremendously resilient because of their ability to adapt to an, like, an inappropriate environment. So they have, they have this blueprint of the world of how, how things work, how things play out, and in relationships. And in that blueprint as well, they might see themselves as unworthy. They might see themselves as the problem, which is why the abuse happened, which is also a safety yeah. mechanism. Because when we have abusive parents as a child, you're, you're, again, you're rendered powerless and you're held captive in that. So it's easier to say, you know what, I'm the bad child. I, I need to feel safe in an unsafe environment. I need to feel love in an unlovable environment. Um, It's my fault it's happened because I'm a bad person and children in themselves are just a little bit egocentric because they're mm-hmm. children. They can't see beyond themselves. And so it's easier for them to say, I'm the problem, because there's some sort of control with that. Definitely. If 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 I'm the problem, I can change. Um, Rather than to accept powerlessness, to say, I was just a child when this all happened. And I really couldn't do too much, because if I told anyone, it would ruin the family. And my parents might be saying that if I tell anyone, I'm going to get in trouble um there's always the burden of secrecy and the burden of secrecy always goes with the child with all of this yes um so in this whole blueprint this a uh, great little attachment blueprint what what's kind of drawn out is i'm a bad person um i'm unworthy of love and belonging and relationships just aren't safe that i i can't really attach to people and children, again, are highly resilient and adaptive, and so they might not really want to depend on other people. I've worked with some uh, people who are so incredibly independent because of the childhood trauma, which, again, very adaptive. Right. So um, these, these kids grow up. They're in these abusive relationships um, from childhood, and now that doesn't really go away. And a lot of children hope as they grow up, that it all just, they, they run away from home, they move out at home and they're like, all right, things are great. And it might take a second to kind of work that all out. So that's kind of how I see attachment play out in adult relationships when I'm working with kids, uh, with adults who have um, previous childhood trauma, that a lot of what we're seeing was probably keeping them safe Right. when they were younger and it all comes down to attachment um and the key is how can we calm down these defensive mechanisms that were really just great in a, in a um, in an abusive environment but are actually causing a lot of problems in a safe environment
1: right because you don't need them anymore
2: you don't need them anymore but you know these kids in now they're adults, have a really hard time with basic trust in relationships because yes. foundationally that was never afforded to them.
0: Right. And that's like the resulting adult that I get, that I work with, mm-hmm. <laughs> like you work, you work with the kids, um, and hopefully do some work there. So maybe they don't even have to come to me, but those of you, you know, those, those who experience childhood trauma and don't have a Brett, Um, so oftentimes come to me, with the, yeah, these, these behaviors that 100% were needed for survival and were super adaptive are now, you know, maladaptive, not, not as useful, uh, Mm -hmm. when we're not in that same situation. And I think, um, if you want to talk about this a little bit of, but like, we cannot do it together of like, um, kind of replaying trauma as adults in, Mm -hmm. in relationships. Sure. Um, And you know what I'll
2: add, and Anna, you can speak about this too, because you worked in substance use. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. That when we're working with individuals who have some sort of comorbid substance use disorder and a traumatic disorder, it kind of makes sense, especially when it comes from childhood trauma, because... What we know about the body of what happens during trauma is you go into fight, flight and freeze or fawn, Mm -hmm. a lot of adrenaline and cortisol is pumped through your bodies. And when you don't have the regulation of a safe adult, you're kind of left with just these really, really big emotions and you have no idea how to manage those. Yeah. So, you know, if the environment really yields itself, it makes sense why someone would have more compulsive substance use, whether that's alcohol or drugs, as a way to kind of calm down the body and their emotions, if that makes sense. So I, I can't yeah. remember why I said that, but Anna, you can <laughs> that in me.
0: Yeah, no, I think we were, it was just kind of like it can look a lot of different ways when, you know when you are in adulthood and i think when we yeah when we have that trauma and we've never really resolved that trauma there are there is this like cross-section of like higher prevalence of that like comorbidity of substance use and trauma absolutely um for sure and i think that it makes yeah it makes very much perfect Mm -hmm. sense because you're on edge you're hyper vigilant 24 7 or you're having flashbacks 24-7. Like, of course you want to get away from that. Absolutely.
2: Sure. And you don't know how. You right. were never given the tools to do that. Right. Uh, because that comes from caregivers. But then right. again, the caregivers were the ones causing the problem.
1: Or yeah. the caregivers were the ones showing that type of behavior yeah. in the first place. Sure. Yeah.
2: And I'm glad you mentioned, Anna, talking about unprocessed trauma, because I think that totally feeds into your question of how this kind of plays out in adult relationships. You know, Mm -hmm. Freud would call it a repetition compulsion. Judith Herman would call it a traumatic reenactment. It's kind of the same thing. But I'm trying to think who said it, and it may have been Judith Herman, and I can't get anywhere without mentioning Judith Herman (laughs) in
0: Can't go a day, you know,
2: (laughs) (laughs) without talking about her.
0: Uh, But she does a really
2: good job saying that these repetition compulsions or these reenactments are kind of the muted language of the trauma. These behaviors are actually saying a lot about what happened in the past, Mm -hmm. and it's because the way traumatic memories are stored, they're not stored like other memories. They're kind of fragmented in your mind the emdr people would say that it's kind of trapped in a neural network a negative neural network um but it's not really processed it's kind of like putting a puzzle together and you don't even know what the puzzle pieces look like right. you know you you have just this really static you know if the trauma is preverbal it's just kind of a sensation or an emotion Mm -hmm. that doesn't really have a whole lot of language. Um, And so what happens is it all comes out behaviorally. And I remember when I was working with some adults and they were engaging in compulsive behavior, you know, one of the questions I would always ask them is like, what is your behavior saying? Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you need right now? Um, because we, you know, think about it with kids. Kids don't have a lot of language in order to say what they need, uh, because they're kids, you know, neocortical functioning just isn't there. They're highly emotional. Um, but their behaviors are gonna, they're gonna speak out. And the same thing is true with adults. Um, and so when we're working with adults who are, again, um, engaging in some sort of compulsive behavior, especially ones that come out in relation to others. Right. I think one thing if we know they come from a traumatic background, one thing worth exploring is you know what what do you need right now? What what yeah. need are you trying to fulfill? Behavior doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's always kind of a reason why and you know it's highly unconscious. Trauma right. is repressed, it's denied. Uh, by the individual and by society, um, and some people are engaging in all these all sorts of behaviors all the time, without really understanding why. But I think as therapists, we have to look into like what need are you trying to fulfill? Right? Is, is there some sort of traumatic antecedent to this behavior that's coming out more clinically that we need to explore?
0: And and I definitely see it. Uh, Even in in my current caseload of because I I only see adults, it is very much of a lot of people who've experienced childhood trauma still don't have the words for it, still don't have the words for it. So, you know, I have a couple of clients who find it very difficult to even express to me an emotion that they're feeling. Right. So I very much am like, okay then. We have to look at behaviors (laughs) because Mm -hmm. you know, I don't need you to tell me right now, because if you don't have the words for you, you don't have the words. But these behaviors have to be telling us something and they always are.
1: Uh, Do either of you use techniques like I know I've been in therapy since I was very, very young, Um, just I was a wild child, ADD, OCD, like parents couldn't control me, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I know that. I did some therapeutic techniques of like anger work of like hitting a pillow or screaming into a pillow or um, like fiddling with like the toys that the therapist would have. Mm -hmm. Um, Are those things that you're looking for or techniques that you use like with kids that aren't able or adults even that like Mm -hmm. aren't able to express with words So basically like trying to create a type of behavior or trying to like witness a type of behavior in therapy.
2: I I love that question for a number of reasons. And it's for children and with adults who come from a traumatic background, you know, especially something like child abuse when we're looking at anger at rage that was projected by the caregiver or whatever trusted adult uh, violated that boundary it's not anger, it's rage. Mm -hmm. You know, abusers might not have the capacity to regulate their anger. And because of that, they go from zero to 100 Mm -hmm. in a second. And so kids model that. Because again, that's that's all they know. That's all they've seen. And so part of working with trauma survivors, especially if they have anger um, concerns, is teaching them the graduations of anger. Because anger Mm. can be a really helpful emotion. And, you know, some of these kids have a lot to be angry at. Um, And we can get into the relationship of anger and loss, which I love. Um, (laughs) But these kids have a lot to be angry about. And so it's kind of teaching them how to regulate their anger and how to experience their anger without going to rage. The same thing is true for fear you you can be afraid without feeling terror
0: right but
2: mm-hmm. in in the traumatic environment unfortunately these children just aren't afforded that lesson that's something that unfortunately wasn't given to them yeah what are your thoughts I mean, anna
0: i i mean i completely agree and i and you know it's funny i it's very much and I guess I, the way I conceptualize it is very much of like there is something there. There are parts of our behavior or, or who we are, right? And and I think for a lot of people, it's like these are bad parts of me. But I think for me, it's very much being like these are not bad parts. Yeah. These are just parts that we maybe can focus in another space, so you can still experience the things you're experiencing and right have every right to be experiencing. And also do it maybe in a more constructive space, and because they don't want to feel that way and they don't want to be reacting in that way. So, like, <laughs> genuinely speaking, I've I've like recommended um, uh, like you want to say like karate or no. fighting classes for mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes like young men, um, but also m- me myself, I'm doing which I'm very excited about and maybe I shouldn't say out loud, but now it's too late. I have to, um, I'm very much trying to pair weightlifting with therapy because Mm -hmm. I think it is a really good space to get, I mean, especially with all types of abuse, really get that out of the body, you know, experience Mm -hmm. that feel strong, get a lot of things from weightlifting that can help kind of heal and, um just yeah be able to express those emotions and behaviors in a different way
2: and i think too to feel safer um Mm -hmm. you know depending on if you're working in uh sexual violence yeah you might engage in a protection class and it will Mm -hmm. kind of empower you um to feel a little bit more safer and confident in that to be like i can protect myself now granted um Sometimes it might be in terms of compensation to undo what happened. And that's a whole other sure. thing. Um, but yeah, like you, I think it's really great again, just to get in touch with your physical body because depending on the trauma, you might completely dissociate from the right. body. And so weightlifting can just be so helpful because you're using your body. You're, you're, back you're using it, it
0: and you have to quite literally focus very hard on the mechanics like you have to feel it you have to be able to do this you know motion in. you know air quotes the the correct way mm-hmm. um and it it forces you to be within your body or else you're gonna like hurt yourself <laughs>
2: right. and, and i want to clarify something um i i hope i didn't sound like i was victim blaming with people like they weren't insulted because they were weak or because they oh
0: sure get it oh, of course life.
2: not I, that was not their fault um, so I just want to clarify that that even you know if the, that it wasn't their fault that they, they yeah. everything that they needed to do to keep themselves safe so I just wanted to clarify that
0: yeah and I think um, for me in particular the way that I am conceptualizing it with the kind of weightlifting is from a place of like my own experiences and and what weightlifting has given to me yeah um, so that's something that. Yeah, I don't think it's very much of being like, you know, you were weak and now you're strong. Yeah, yeah very yeah. much of. Um, I just want you to be able to feel like a different sensation, to feel in a different space, and to feel out uh, what that feels like. Yeah,
1: right. So, in addition to working with anger, mm-hmm. um, you work with grief, and yeah. um, one of my questions that I actually had was. Um, how do the stages of grief? I took an intro psych class uh, <laughs> a couple years ago. Uh, how do the stages of grief uh, play into your work?
2: Sure. Um, so again, I I work explicitly in violent loss, uh, but I think loss is central to all traumatic experiences. You know, even when it's a natural disaster to assault. But, but loss is central. And so kind of the current literature, from my understanding, and Anna, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from my understanding, it's kind of breaking away from the five stages of grief.
0: It quite literally was going to say, fuck the five stages. <laughs>
2: <laughs> because that the data from that was driven um, from people who were dying and not from sure. people who were mourning. And so there...
1: Uh-huh. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. True.
2: So there's mm-hmm. clinical differences between those two populations.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I think what's really important to think about in terms of grief is there's a really broad diversity of the clinical presentation of traumatic disorders. But what I... Two major emotions that I see are fear and loss. Mm-hmm. You know, the fear condition is kind of captured by the intrusive thoughts that they're having, flashbacks and um, nightmares that they're just sitting in their home, and all of a sudden they just get this really grotesque image of what happened to them, or they're having a lot of avoidance, or they're feeling like the event is happening all over to them. Yeah, the traumatic mourning. It can be explicit, like the clients that I work with who have lost someone, but sometimes traumatic mourning is a little bit more implicit. Um, So things that they really have to grieve is the loss of a childhood that was taken from them.
1: Sure. And they
2: have to grieve the loss of attachment and loss of attunement with a safe caregiver. Um, they have to grieve a loving environment. And again, this was all... Taken from them. They didn't ask for this. It wasn't their fault. Um, and that's what's really, really difficult about working with grief and loss with trauma survivors is um this none of they didn't ask for they didn't sign up for any of this because of the inappropriate actions of adults. Now these kids have to face these losses.
0: Right.
2: So these collective losses kind of capture the etiology of the traumatic neurosis. And so as they're dealing with all this relational loss, you know, they might get really, really triggered in relationships. I remember I was working with a young man who he had a really difficult time. And this came even in movies where um, he saw parents supporting their gay child. Mm. And that actually triggered him. And it wasn't. A typical trauma trigger in the sense where there was a lot of like fight, flight and freeze. Um, he didn't go into a full blown panic attack, but it did trigger a lot of loss because again, as a resultant of his trauma, that just wasn't afforded to him. And so that's right. kind of what we're looking at in terms of traumatic mourning and traumatic loss is um, there, they might get triggered. And what we know about trauma is a kind of always comes up even if you've been a fully integrated person you know big life events might trigger your trauma um anniversaries holidays birthdays anything like that um you might get triggered and so that's kind of what happens again i think with this client it was just movies
0: mm-hmm. that
2: just kind of triggered him and so um as therapists as trauma therapist, too we need to be able to work with that grief and loss and one way we can start to do that is i mean grief work in general there's no way to bypass that
1: right.
2: and looking at what justice looks like um yeah definitely as we know the legal system doesn't do a great job at helping because it's true. Um, I used to be a legal advocate at the domestic violence shelter and it was so aggravating uh, yeah. because it, the legal system just falls through, which then in turns reinforces the client's thought yep. that they're powerless and no one cares about them.
1: Absolutely. Yep.
2: Uh, yep. And it, it's, I, I've said this before and I think that therapists sometimes do more, to help the client receive justice than the actual legal system does. And I'll say that. And I've worked with some really, really great attorneys Um, and the state's attorneys and the DAs, you know, they try to do a really, really good job, but I think the system is just flawed. And so that's where, you know, we work with the client To say, you know, what does justice really look like? You might not get an apology. And that's really hard for people to understand. And that's where it's kind of framed that it's more about the restorative love of the self than it is about the apology from the perpetrator. And actually, I think there's enough data to, to say that when the client kind of breaks free from that, they feel enormous relief because the perpetrator then isn't dictating their healing the perpetrator isn't saying yep i'm sorry and now you're healed right the it gives more control back to the survivor to say you know what i'm choosing i'm
1: choosing to Mm -hmm. grieve
2: what happened to me and yeah which is enormously difficult and when you talk to trauma survivors they have so much courage to do that um so that's my whole spiel i mean i can go on about traumatic mourning and traumatic loss
0: yeah
2: um but it's yeah it's really sad sometimes to see how the legal system lets people down and it's really hard to sit with some people as they talk about what they've lost because these these children have really lost a lot
1: yeah and it's um kind of what i learned uh in my 20s uh through some tough situations mm-hmm. was that at the end of the day closure comes from the inside yeah um mm-hmm. which kind of goes like with what you're you're saying um it's it's not going to be something that you can i mean i i had a situation where i was waiting for an apology i waited for years yeah. for an apology um over something that something really horrible that someone had done to me and um, it it didn't come. And at the end of the day, all that it took was writing a a scathing letter. I should, it was scathing Um, (laughs) and sending it. I rarely send my letters, but I sent that one. And burning all of this person's things that they had gifted to me over the course of our relationship. And just like that, that was the closure. And I decided in that moment that I deserved more than to, you know let this consume me yeah um so yeah
2: you know and it sounds like you deserve that too you deserve that empowerment and you know choosing that choosing your recovery and I, I can't remember who said it but they said forgiveness is giving up all hopes of a better past
1: mm, and I really I like
2: really enjoyed that quote per- personally and professionally Um, (laughs) because I think a lot of people, especially for trauma survivors, they hold on for hope that maybe it didn't happen, that Mm -hmm. they can kind of compensate for what happened to them, whether that's being the best child ever. You know, they did everything. They got perfect grades. You know, we see the perfectionist come out. Right. Definitely. Or um, really, really angry. And they're trying to compensate for what happened to them. And then, you know, this forgiveness is the, the, what happened to them happened to them. And that that wasn't their fault. And they were just a child. And they deserve so much better. Um, and that their past doesn't dictate their future.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I I guess, so there is like a, maybe like a controversial thing that is is coming to mind for me of um, the concept of acceptance. So not in the way of I accept what happened and I, like I, I'm fine with it, Mm -hmm. but the concept of acceptance of, I know that this happened to me. I know that this has to be incorporated into my, Mm -hmm. my story. Story, right. mm -hmm, And this is how I have to move forward. yeah because that is
2: it is necessary for healing because if not that that kind of plays into the fragmentation that there's not a right. cohesive linear narrative that there's this block that something didn't happen and then something else happened you know what i mean it, it's not clear picture and then once we help clients accept which then would probably bring anger and loss and error and helping the client put that together we we might see a lot of relief from that
0: yeah and yeah from personal and professional experience um it doesn't go away Uh, it does not go away it trauma lives with inside of you and it is only a matter unfortunately i don't mean to be like <laughs> scary about it but, like it's only a matter of time till we have
1: some amount of like breakdown of the things we've been doing to try and avoid it yeah and it's also not something i think you know anna we've discussed this before uh mm-hmm. just this idea of of weaving that into your tapestry of your life of your story mm-hmm. and it's not something that like you do the work and then I'm cured. I'm never going to think about it again. I'm never right, going to be right. triggered again. It's something that you're probably going to have to grapple with your entire life. Hopefully it'll be a little less intense every time that you do. And you'll learn the coping mechanisms mm-hmm. that work for you. But it's not something that's ever going to go away.
2: It's, it's part of your story, but it's not the only part of your story.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
2: Um, it's what happened to you but so many other possibly great things have happened to you or, you know, depending on the child, maybe not. Um, right. But there's always hope that the, the world can get better. And again, I'm going to just spew off another Judith Herman little spit because I love her. Um, <laughs> you know, she really says that there's a, there's a really explicit switch for clients once they experience um, a positive relationship, really just this niceness that someone Mm -hmm. displayed towards them because they've been given the complete opposite of all of that. And again, they come into the world with this blueprint and then someone's just altruism challenges that blueprint. And all of a sudden the world might be safe. Maybe it might be safe. Maybe, you know, we we have to ease that out and the survivor might grapple with that for a little bit. But as the survivor grows up and as they engage more fully in um, safe relationships, it really starts to challenge that blueprint of what was given to them, right. which then might make it easier to grieve the losses because they're saying that's what happened to me then, but I'm safe now.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, I never, uh, you know, I never promise like, oh, you know, things are gonna get better. But I always promise things will definitely get different and hopefully better.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and with the right therapist, hopefully it does get better. Um, But you know, there's, as that Judith Herman says, there's no exorcism of trauma. You can't completely just like pray it away and it's gone forever, (laughs) banished to hell. You know that it doesn't really work like that. Um, yeah. that again, trauma might reverberate throughout your life, but that doesn't mean that every time you get triggered, it's going to be the same that you might notice. Gosh, I'm really triggered. And I think I need to call a friend right now. Yeah. Right. Um, I need to take a bath and get in touch with my body. You know, some mm-hmm. like that, some grounding strategies, um, that it does get easier and uh, survivors get really proficient in
0: managing triggers. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lifetime of having yeah. to do it. Yeah, get very proficient. You're an expert.
2: Yeah. then after that. <laughs> <laughs> uh.
1: I know. I'm like, oh, is this why I'm so good at, like, I don't know, what I'm good at, I guess? Is this why I'm here? I'm on this podcast? Oh, right. shit. Right. Um, well, I guess I'm curious, and I kind of added this as an afterthought to Anna, Um. I was curious about, because I actually don't know the answer to this. I have heard murmurings, I guess, Mm -hmm. about big T versus little T trauma. Sure. And I kind of wanted to see what you guys, uh, both of you, had had to say about that. Like, What what are the differences and um, how do you deal with each one differently? Hmm.
2: So, diagnostically now, and I can get so nerdy into this,
1: there (laughs) are two kind
2: of classifications of diseases. There's one coming out of the World Health Organization, and there's a more common one for therapists from the DSM. Um, The DSM doesn't have this yet, but we've seen this published by the World Health Organizations, and they do delineate the difference between complex trauma and classic PTSD. Um, And what I really like about it is it kind of shows that you might have a client who has chronic victimization, and doesn't show any symptoms of complex trauma, despite all of the big hmm. traumas that happen to them. Right. And so it highlights the resilience or on the other end, you might have a single impact trauma that causes complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the treatment methods are a little bit different for sure, Um I think with the classic trauma with EMDR, you know, they have a really good protocol for helping with single impact traumas. You know, especially if this is a person who comes from a positive social support, mm-hmm. who doesn't have any history of trauma, you know, we might be able to treat that relatively quickly compared right. to someone which we've been talking about the more complex big T traumas. Um, That are more categorized by, again, chronic victimization, really, really hallmark victimizations, or uh, Mm -hmm. something that happened to them caused by someone who was supposed to be safe. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we might see that as as it relates to domination and submissiveness. Um, That might be a little bit more difficult to treat, because... You know, now our first step is trying to help them feel safe in relation to someone else. I mean, especially, again, if they're engaging in behaviors that are harmful, like a substance use disorder. We we got to calm that substance use disorder and get them sober before we can even touch the trauma.
0: Right. Oh, um, right, because that will just set it off even yeah, more.
1: Yeah, that sounds
2: Absolutely.
0: messy.
2: Yeah, and it gets really, really complex. And right. um So there are some treatment and diagnostic differences between the two. Um, And I think some people specialize more in the classic single impact traumas and they do a really great job at that. And then other people kind of focus more on the complex traumas that again, kind of ruin relationships for people that they can't really, they either feel nothing at all or they feel everything in extremes. Right, that they just feel completely worthless and they're just wrought with shame from what happened to them,
0: and that's that like real long term, like intense work.
2: Yeah, it can. It, well, I want to give people hope a little yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: it can be a long term treatment, you know, again, especially if there's kind of um concurrent diagnoses or dissociation sure. that happens, but. You know, there's a lot of different treatments out there that people are really, really good at at treating this disorder,
0: right? Um, and you know, long term is a relative term. Sure. For each person, that could, hope, right? Hopefully, that that doesn't have to mean like the rest of your life. You know, yeah. it can, right. it can't. A long term treatment can be three years. It can be one year. Like mm-hmm. whatever it is, whatever it looks like for you. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: it's just not an in and out situation. <laughs> correct. Yeah. And again,
2: depending on I'm, I'm really big on social and relational influences and so again, depending on the accessibility and the quality of the individual social support, that might really dictate how sure. long someone is in treatment. Yes. Yes.
0: And I guess I want to say like big T and little t it's kind of um, you know, it's kind of I don't know. I, I'm not a big and maybe that, cha- that changes with every single social worker or, or, or therapist you're going to talk to. I'm not really a big categorizer, right? Like mm-hmm. for me, little T or big T trauma. doesn't matter. Yeah. We're going to treat what you're dealing with. We're going to treat the symptoms. We're going to talk through this experience, whatever you need. Um, because I think for some people, something that might be technically classified as a little T very much. Right. Like you said, Brett, becomes complex trauma and becomes this thing that is that is very difficult to deal with. So for me it's it's not really like an important for for me in my work. It's not an important distinction all the time. It's more of yeah, is this like to to how how is this basically affecting your day to day?
2: Yeah. And the leaders of the World Health Organization, this was I think published in 2013. When they said this, um, when they started conceptualizing the differences between PTSD and complex PTSD, mm-hmm. they originally didn't want this category of like, this is what a traumatic experience is. Because in the DSM, it's like a near-death experience, or you learned of a near-death experience, or you witnessed a near-death experience, Um Whereas, you know, they try to shift some stuff in the literature to say, you know, it might not matter what happened. You know, if this person is symptomatic, they're symptomatic, regardless of the that's ideology. Right. Um, yeah. If this person is having nightmares and flashbacks and avoidance and they're re-experiencing things, sounds a lot like PTSD. Right. Right. No matter what brought it on.
1: Sure. Right. Yeah, I think that's um, an important point, too, that it very it very much can be dependent on the person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um I have like maybe like a good
0: finisher. Um Okay, let's do it. <laughs> it's not it's not spicy or anything. Um very much of and this could be f- for both of us to answer, but like mostly for you because you are EMDR certified, so what do you find that is the best sort of like clinical treatment? Sure for trauma
2: so and i'll say this i'm there's a difference between edm emdr trained and emdr certified i'm not okay. certified yet so i don't want to okay, emphasize okay. that i'm certified
0: i'm trained in it oh um, okay just like i'm trained in dbt <laughs> are you tried in dbt i am trained in dbt oh, yeah
2: congrats i wish i was <laughs> really helpful
0: um, it, it is it can be
2: <laughs> so I'm a little bit biased with my treatment because I'm trained in EMDR and I've received EMDR treatment personally. And I I think there's a, I think it actually is the most studied PTSD treatment, even more than Mm -hmm. I'm a focused cognitive behavioral therapy.
1: Oh, interesting. Um,
2: There's been a lot, a lot of clinical studies and randomized controlled trials that show the um, efficacy of EMDR, which is approved by the Department of Defense. Um, so I'm a little bit biased towards that one because it works really well with an EMDR therapist. You don't have to really even say what happened, right? Um, with EMDR therapy, what we're doing is kind of starting the psychological self healing that kind of already happens. You know, the um, the lady who made EMDR, Francine Shapiro, said, you know, if you get cut, your body heals it. And the same thing is true for the mind. Sometimes, however, there's blocks that prevent it from healing. And that's where EMDR comes in, where with the bilateral stimulation, which is the eye movements or the tappers, we begin to kind of kickstart the psychological self-healing. And so for clients who have high avoidance, who don't want to talk about it, who have tried talk therapy, and it just, they didn't like it. EMDR might be a really good choice because you really don't have to say anything. I mean, it's encouraged. It would be nice <laughs> to make sure that it's working, but it's not actually necessary. So you you can just do the eye movements and the therapist will check in on you and make sure you're doing okay. And it has to be, of course, monitored and facilitated by a clinician, but you don't have to say things necessarily necessarily. And I'm also really big on um, psychodynamic treatment. And I think it's because I was trained by a psychoanalyst. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave with a great Judith Herman quote. Um, and it's one that I actually really, really live by that. he said that if the damage is relational, the healing is relational. That you, you can't heal by yourself because this, the trauma happened in relation to someone else.
0: Right. You know, I remember
2: yeah. when COVID happened and there's all this trauma that's happening. I remember hearing that the government wasn't supplying PPE and it was like, that is what's going to cause the trauma because you have all these people asking for help and then people not giving the help right. and that, where the relational right. disturbances and the impairments happen because it happened in relation and then you stop trusting people. And right. so with psychodynamic treatment, it's so relational that traumatic reenactments happen in relation to the therapist and to the client Mm -hmm. and the counter-transference comes up and the client is um, doing a lot of transference onto the therapist. And we work with that in the room and with the relationship, that's kind of healing, which is why when I did a private practice, it was called relational healing. (laughs) Really that's what causes the healing, at least what I think. And that's my own, Hokiness and touchy feely stuff, um, but I cognitive behavioral therapy has done a really great job. I don't want to say that it hasn't. Right. Prolonged exposure also has some great outcome data. If the client finishes prolonged exposure, that's the right. Got. Right. It, if they can tolerate how intense it is, it does work. Um, but there's a huge dropout rate with that. But mm-hmm. I, again, I'm big on this touchy feely we're gonna heal through relationships and love and connection and authenticity and vulnerability because that's really wasn't afforded to the child yeah
0: right yeah i would say that i, say that I that. yeah i definitely align with the I, so i don't do emdr but i very much uh know my scope and if i find that someone can benefit i'm very much like you need to i think you need to try this <laughs> <laughs> yeah. here's this recommendation um But I would say probably more psychodynamic Mm -hmm. um, and just, yeah, fully, fully relational. And whether that's with me in the room or we're kind of looking at experiences outside and looking how those traumas are kind of playing out. Yeah, yeah, some systems stuff going on in there, too. But yeah, I think there are a lot of options. Um, So if you are someone who is like looking for a therapist, of course, like, do your research, feel it out. But I also believe, like, there, I think with trauma in particular, this probably doesn't exactly line up. But they did a study of what, like, what is the best sort of, uh, you know, therapeutic modality. And in the end, they were just like, oh, it's just what matters most is that you like your therapist. Yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) So, you know, no matter what, which I f- find to be very relational, like no matter what, no matter what you want to try, it's it's making sure you really can stand your therapist, can stand looking at them for an hour and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, to a general sense, like enjoy and can get along or at least, yeah, not hate them. Yeah, yeah. There's
2: an attachment and attunement to the therapist, no matter if they're a staunch cognitive behavioralist you know that that could be more healing than a bad psychodynamic therapist.
1: Right. Right. It's right. all about the relationship. Yeah. Well, Brett, thank you so much thank for you. being our first guest. Um, yeah.
2: Hopefully I feel like in the mood. <laughs> no, no,
1: no, no. No, this is great. It's fascinating. Um and I hope that we can have you I think that you could add a lot to a lot of the topics that, sure. you know, we have on our like three-page long Google Doc of on the, on the, yeah on the docket. Uh, so yeah, like uh, if yeah, if you want to come back at some point, we would love to have you. I would
2: love that. That'd be great. Um,
1: yeah, yeah everybody, thanks for listening. Um, we'll see if we can get some different resources. I'm going to link the. Uh, Suicide National Hotline in the uh, show notes and see if yep. I can get maybe some other you know, resources to get
0: Brett well. you did so much damn name dropping we're gonna have to get resources for all the things you said my god <laughs> you know, one
2: thing to take away is Judith Herman
0: just, just, we're gonna write that in the description note just Judith Herman, just Judith
2: Herman. I love her she's great
1: <laughs> and it's in. Uh <laughs> All right. Well, everybody thanks for listening. Um thank you again, Brett. Uh this is Ben, Anna, Brett, and Rachel here on Wine Dine and 69 and let's keep talking.